You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And just as a warning, these films might be in theaters now, or they may be from 10, 20, 30 years ago. But regardless, there's a strong possibility that I will be revealing spoilers. I might give away the plot or the ending in this review, so just be warned. Panic Room, which came out in 2002 and was directed by David Fincher. For them, it was the perfect home. I love you. But in a moment, everything changed. left. You gotta trust me. You have to risk everything. We will find you. Two-time Academy Award winner Jodie Foster. Panic Room. Rated R. It stars Jodie Foster, Force Whitaker, Kristen Stewart, Jared Leto, and Dwight Yoakam. The genre would be suspense thriller. This gem of a thriller is about to turn 20. This was David Fincher's follow-up to his seminal film Fight Club. And one thing that always struck me among most others, at the time of release, was just how small and simple this film felt compared to the crazy scope of Fight Club. David Fincher has become one of our most respected filmmakers of the past 25-plus years, thanks to the craft and precision he has brought to generally big stories with large scope. Adapting true stories like the expansive search for the Zodiac Killer in the movie Zodiac, or the creation of Facebook by an amoral recluse in the movie The Social Network or fictitious stories like the expansive search for a serial killer in Seven, or the creation of a nihilistic secret society led by an amoral antihero in Fight Club. Hold on a second. Hmm. Well, we can unpack that another time. (laughs) Well, back to Panic Room. This is basically a very straightforward story of a woman and her daughter trapped inside their new home, attempting to protect themselves from three burglars who just want to steal something which happens to be inside the one place they have sequestered themselves inside of the titular Panic Room. And that's pretty much it. It's basically a simple story of cat and mouse, all set within one location, which is one of the things I really dig about this movie. No, it's not top-tier Fincher, but it's still damn entertaining. I was also curious if it was actually this film which coined the phrase Panic Room, because I don't ever remember hearing that before this came out. And technically, it wasn't, as the concept of the Panic Room first really took off in the 90s in West Coast homes of the rich and powerful. However, this movie pretty much took the concept mainstream. It's called a panic room. What? A safe room. A castle keep in medieval time. I've read about these. They're quite in vogue in high-end construction right now. One really can't be too careful about home invasion. This is perfect. The alarm goes off in the middle of the night. What are you going to do? Call the police and wait till Tuesday? Traipse downstairs in your underthings to check it out? I think not. Ford concrete walls? Buried phone line not connected to the house's main line. You can call the police, nobody can cut you off. You have your own ventilation system, a bank of surveillance monitors that covers nearly every corner of the house. This whole thing makes me nervous. This is probably the closest that Fincher has ever come to directing a pure, surface-level genre piece. There's no subtext nor larger themes to be explored. You could say that this was pretty much his answer to Die Hard, albeit with quite the mean streak because pretty much every major character, with the exception of Burnham, who's played by Force Whitaker, goes through some sort of extreme physical trauma during its runtime. 
shit just gets brutal. Burnham is one of the burglars who are intent on getting inside that panic room alongside the mysterious Raul, played by Dwight Yoakam, who never has that much to say. And both of them are seemingly led by Junior, played by Jared Leto, who entertainingly never seems to shut up. Wait, look, what? Just, just wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. We can handle this, we can handle this. Now, can we still handle this? It's just a woman and a kid. Unless daddy comes home. Daddy's not coming home. They're in the middle of a divorce. Daddy's banging some fucking B-model on the upper side, right? It's just her and the kid. Now, can we do this? Yeah, we can do it. <laughs> now, what people here end up with me? Wait, wait, stop. So, we keep an eye on her. Raul can totally administrate that part. I don't want Raul to administrate that part. He's not even supposed to be here. Nobody gets hurt. What about us? What if she has a gun? Who are you? I'm Raul. All of the performances are pretty entertaining, if a bit uneven at times, from those burglars, as the threat level of these three goons seems to vacillate somewhat as we spend more time with them, which is probably this film's biggest weakness and prevents it from reaching the upper echelon of suspense thrillers. It's just strange that as we progress further into the story, one of our villains starts to come off more cartoonishly bumbling, almost as if he was a cohort of the wet bandits from Home Alone. Another one starts to feel increasingly sympathetic. And the third? Well, in the third act, he just seems increasingly unstoppable and comes off more as a slasher villain along the lines of Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees. Now, I'm not sure if this was a screenplay or performance issue, but this film slightly loses its footing with some of its characters towards the end, which weakens that climax just a bit. That said, the absurdly large and intricate Manhattan apartment where pretty much all the action takes place, is almost the star of the show. And the apartment was done with great production design from Arthur Max, who also did Seven with David Fincher a few years prior. And of course, Jodie Foster still does a nice star turn as Meg, the mild-mannered recent divorcee who believably has some John McClane in her when the situation calls for it, with her preteen daughter Sarah along for the ride, played by a very young Kristen Stewart six years before she would star in the first Twilight movie. They're coming in here, aren't they? No, 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 they can't. I told you they can't get in here. What do you know about this room? Oh, what do we know about this room? Oh, well, just, room just a few small details. We're not coming out, and we're not letting you in. Get out of my house! Say fuck. Fuck! Mom, get the fuck out of my house. Fuck. Get the fuck out of my house! And what results is 110 minutes of domestic mayhem, which is rewatchable, if nothing else, than for all of the great camera zooms, and to see Jared Leto sporting cornrows. And that brings me to the categories. The first category would be Best Needle Drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. Okay, when I think about films which truly unnerved me upon first viewing as a young man, the three most obvious ones which come to mind are Seven, the Silence of the Lambs, and The Fly. Each of these films are true masterworks of tension and horror from genuine filmmaking giants. Fincher, in the case of Seven, the late great Jonathan Demme for Silence of the Lambs, and David Cronenberg, who gave us his brilliant remake of The Fly. And as brilliantly directed and as acted as each of these films are, 
None of them would work nearly as well without an operatic score to highlight said tension and horror. And all three scores came from the same composer. That would be Howard Shore, who is likely one of our most underrated film composers. Hailing from Canada, Howard Shore has been churning out strong music for movies going back four decades now, and for some big films no less, such as the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which he won two Oscars for. But he has never carved a level of notoriety for himself like some of his household name peers like John Williams, Danny Elfman, or Hans Zimmer. And that's likely because, as effective as his scores have been, they are rarely hummable, nor can be distilled into one memorable theme. That's just not how he rolls. Shore's music tends to be more subtle, and for good reason, because even in the case of Panic Room, with a pretty minimalistic score, he once again pulls off the task of accentuating the tension. And when Fincher feels the need to kick off this movie with a very showy opening credit sequence featuring static, seemingly three-dimensional titles, basically CGI words, just floating amidst the skyscrapers of Manhattan, who are you going to call? Shore's jazz-infused mid-tempo theme, which repeats later in the movie, is just pitch perfect for this sequence. You've got some spirited bass guitar in the background, while a nice mixture of strings and brass help ease us into this seemingly intimidating urban environment. His music helps serve as a great table setter for this movie. next category is the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. About halfway through Panic Room, as we are now in a full-on battle of wills, our lead protagonist Meg finds herself in quite the pickle. She and her daughter are in the titular Panic Room and wisely will not leave nor even allow for the burglars to enter. Why would she? Well, the burglars are just not going to take this lying down, and they decide as a way to either force Meg and her daughter out of the Panic Room or just to possibly kill them so they become a non-factor, the burglars bring in a gas tank from just outside on the patio. They drill a hole in the piping that goes into the panic room, and you guessed it, they start pumping in the gas. Uh-oh. What follows is, for me, the true highlight of this movie, when Foster's Meg comes up with an ad hoc solution to this gas being pumped into the panic room. You see, Meg has found some fireproof blankets as part of the supplies in the titular room big enough to cover both her and her daughter. And she also has found a lighter. And what's on the other end of this heavily fortified wall where her pursuers are located and trying to kill her or drive her out? Well, that's right, a gas tank. Hmm. So as the music builds, the real fun of this sequence is watching every other character's reaction to what Meg is attempting to do with the lighter, including her own daughter, who's a bit freaked out about it, but still behind her 100%. The reactions are absolutely priceless and might be the most purely crowd-pleasing moment of any film David Fincher has directed. Mom, just a sec. Mom, get into this. Oh my 
god. That's Fucking right, amateurs, man. I jumped out of myself. Idea. Idea. So turn it down! That brings me to the next category, which would be wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now, none of the talent is actually wasted in this movie, and every actor involved has at least a couple of moments to shine, including Forrest Whitaker, who has always been one of my personal favorites. Going back 35 years, when a young, unknown Mr. Whitaker was stealing some big scenes from the legend Paul Newman in The Color of Money. Of the three burglars, his Burnham is by far the most sympathetic and just speaking for myself, I even grew to kind of like his character towards the end, which makes his eventual fate somewhat disappointing. Not to spoil too much, but it just adds a slightly sad postscript to the ending of this movie. Oh well, I guess Fincher and writer David Kep were determined to relay the message to the audience that crime doesn't pay. Done. Was it supposed to be like this? Yeah, it all worked out. And that brings us to the final category, which would be the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. This is a Fincher film through and through. Though I would not even rank it among the top five films that he has directed, David Fincher still brings his signature style to what in lesser hands could have been a more rote home invasion thriller. And you can tell that he's just cutting loose here, as his camera is going everywhere throughout this house taking us through ventilation ducts, through keyholes, and even at one point through the handle of a coffee maker as we pan along the lower level of this four-level brownstone. You heard that right, four levels. Watching our burglars work their way inside from different entry points. And even though the climax isn't as white-knuckle effective as it could have been, thanks to the unevenness of the villains, Panic Room still retains the unflinching nastiness which has pervaded Fincher's most intense films from Gone Girl to Seven, even to the game. Fincher, as a director, has never shied away from showing brutality, though with a couple of exceptions, he rarely lingers on it. He's not an Eli Roth just pummeling you with lasting images of gore to try to shock you into submission, but he never lets his characters off the hook either. As I said, folks get hurt throughout this movie, so it keeps you on your toes. And one other bonus, as much as I love most of his films, David Fincher's movies tend to be a bit overlong at times. But not this time. Besides Alien 3, which technically he wasn't even allowed to finish directing, Panic Room is still the only film that he has directed which clocks in at less than two hours. Overall, it's a tight, well-paced thriller, and I kind of wish he did more pure genre films like this. He has certainly got the chops. Fincher is your MVP. You're trying to get everybody to be on the same page, everybody to be in the same movie, everybody to be in the same moment. And that's a lot of work. That's what you're doing. You're sculpting behavior over time. 
and you're given a very, very finite amount of patience that the audience has for you to get those ideas across. And to think of it in, in that way, it's not Chinese checkers. It's not about, okay, well, I did that, I did the over, and now I'm doing... No, it's, it's three-dimensional chess. My rating for Panic Room would be three and a half stars out of five. <laughs> Panic Room is not the best of its kind, but it's still damn good. And believe it or not, three of the five main stars are actually Oscar winners. That would be Foster, Whitaker, and Leto. And Kristen Stewart is actually nominated this year for Best Actress. Not bad. So if you want to see strong actors serving a strong director, there's no need to panic, as this room is worth visiting. And if you're looking to watch Panic Room, it's currently streaming on Hulu, Tubi, and Pluto TV. And that ends another fortified review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Thank you.